You and me talking, nobody's going to notice the difference anyway. Yeah, talk over each other. Are you enjoying a brioche bun? Uh, I cannot remember the last time I had a brioche bun. Because <laughs> I thought that all you Brightonians enjoyed brioche quite regularly. I was talking to Laura last week. We had five-minute conversation about brioche buns. Well, you see, that's that's it. You see, brioche buns are so last week. Well, this is what I was saying about focaccia. But I see, I can't keep up. No, it's, it's, it's different pace in Brighton. I can't keep up with you Brightonians and your artisan breads. Yeah, and you know, macaroons are the new cupcakes. Whoopie, really? whoopie pies, that's going to be the latest thing. A macaroon tower. I've seen those on MasterChef. Yeah, there's, there's entire shops now in Brighton dedicated to artisanal macaroons. We've also, we, we've also just reached peak burrito in Brighton. So that's, that's on its way out. That's clearly so last week. So what happens? You discover a new place to get, let's say, a breakfast burrito. And yeah, then, there's some and kind you enjoy of, it. yeah. And then before you know it, there's two places and then there's three places. And then suddenly it's boring because there's loads of places doing them. And then you have to move on to the next thing. And all those old pla- those places shut down. It's like I'll go away for a week or two. And when I come back, it's entirely different shops and cafes in Brighton. It's good. It's like variety all the time. I can remember when I worked in London and then it was all soup. It's like every third shop mm-hmm. on the corner was soup. Yep. And then, and then you come back the next week and it's, uh, it's, it's, I don't know, fish tacos. <laughs> no, fish tacos are good. Well, they're good in San Diego. I haven't had good ones outside San Diego, but I, I reckon, I reckon England could do with a, a fish taco craze. I was thinking it was something I was really hoping. Oh yeah. Ramen, ramen noodles. That's what I would like to be the next burrito. Like I, sometimes I really crave a nice big bowl of ramen. And there's a few places in London. There's like three different places in Soho now. And Chris Heathcote did this fantastic blog post where he tried all three of them and described them. And oh, it'll just make you so hungry. Wouldn't be very good for your fitness plan. It but sounds I, great. Though. Yeah, and I want that to come to Brighton. I want I want ramen to be the next the next uh, burrito. Ramen is the new burrito. Would you know what to do with an artichoke? Yeah, I do now. Um, I didn't until recently. You mean in terms of eating it or preparing it? Preparing it, because I saw one yeah. in Sainsbury's the other day, and I thought, what did you do with that? And I looked it up online, and no idea. Yeah. I don't think they're designed to be eaten, are they? I don't think the effort involved is necessarily worth what you get out of it. It's a lot of faff. Or it's, it's really faffy. It's faffy to prepare, and then even once you've prepared it, it's really faffy to eat it. Because I just imagine that you'd know exactly what to do with an archer, because you know the perfect way to peel a banana. Uh, I do, but I learned that from the internet. Maybe there's a YouTube video about artichokes. Uh, there probably is, undoubtedly. There's, there's entire websites devoted to you know how to do everyday tasks, and they're kind of mesmerizing, you know, how to prepare an artichoke. You kind of just put it on in the background. It's, it's very relaxing. Well, you see, I've got to confess that I've become a little bit of a watcher of swimming videos. <laughs> okay, not not in a pervy way. <laughs> no, no, beefcakes doing front okay. crawl. No, I've been. Uh, it, it's perfecting my technique. Ah, yeah, watching watching other people swim well. Yes. No, but seriously, isn't there something about that that when you watch? Like when you're watching movies that you, the same things trigger in your brain as if you were actually doing the activity in the movie. So you can actually learn by watching other people do things. Well, it's funny you say that because that's why I only ever watch superhero movies. Right, because you're learning to be a superhero. 
Because I, well, I'm in Thor. All right. So you will be Thor if you watch it enough. I have a hammer, but it's more of a claw hammer than a, than a, what is it? He has a name, Thor's hammer. Jeez, I'm uh, a rubbish oh, superhero. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> starts with a consonant, doesn't it? Uh, I can't believe I'm forgetting the name of Thor's hammer. Okay, so I have to Google it now, because otherwise we're going to be talking for an hour, and I'm going to He's going to drive it crazy. burning away in my head. Anyway, Thor's hammer, somebody's... By the it. hammer of Thor. It was called... Oh, God, I can't even say it. Right, because it's, it's all consonants, right? It's M-J-O-L-N-I-R. Yeah, so, that's right. Mjolnir. Mjolnir, the hammer. That's right. Okay. It's on the tip of my tongue. I probably couldn't even pick it up. But then I don't think anyone can pick it up unless you're Thor. No, but you've got your claw hammer, so you're all set. You're like a little Thorlet. I've had to graduate to a claw hammer because before that I was like on a rock hammer. Okay, like like a little teensy one for for geology field trips? Well, yeah, but you can do a lot with it, having seen the Shawshank Redemption. Indeed, with perseverance, yeah. No spoilers, but uh, yeah. We're not allowed to talk about films because people write in and complain. Oh, but I was going to say to you, have you seen... I, okay, the only film thing I'll say. Go on. There's a website called The Dissolve. It's a film website, and they have, they've been doing this whole section called The Laser Age, which is looking back at the 70s sci-fi visions of Ooh. the future. And it's right up your alley. There was a whole bit on Planet of the Apes, you know, various dystopias. Yeah, I thought of you. I, th- I figured you'd like that. It's good. It's well written. No, I've got it on here. I shall um, have a look at this later on. Where do you stand on Soylent Green? You know, it's good. I read the book and i think i read the book before i saw the film the book um make room make room by harry harrison um and the film's really different but i do enjoy the film and there's bits of it that are really touching you know there's the um the euthanasia scene yes that was a surprise actually because i watched soylent green again not too long ago it's the first time i've seen it for years Mm. and uh, that was a surprise because i completely blanked that bit out yeah it's actually quite moving and I could remember people being scooped up on big diggers in the street. Yeah, that's that's kind of the classic image. But I don't think that's a dystopian feature because having heard this week on the news that Boris Johnson has bought three second-hand water cannons for London, you must have missed this. Have you heard, have you heard about this? I think I heard it on my way. Once I got back into the country, it was the main uh, news item. Yeah. Like, yeah. We're heading towards that um, make room, make room. Soil and green present. Well, it's funny you should say that because we digress completely, but I was watching on the news again about like a housing bubble in London. Mm-hmm. Apparently, apparently there were not enough houses. They're going to start building on Hyde Park or something. And up here, you can still buy a house in Liverpool for 25 grand. It's like there's no housing bubble in the country. There's just a housing bubble in London. So, yeah, you know, there's maybe a massive divide, massive. I suppose Brighton comes into the southeast as well. But. Yeah, unfortunately, what happens is we get people working in London, living in Brighton, so Brighton gets the worst of both worlds. So we've got more or less London prices without actually being in London. Well, I mean, a lot of our friends work in London, don't they? But imagine, yeah. I imagine, I imagine Paul and Kenneth standing on Brighton Station in the morning, probably in the winter when it's a little bit drizzly, mm-hmm. perhaps, perhaps, perhaps sort of late autumn, and they've both got identical Macs on, identical <laughs> raincoats on. And yeah. perhaps, perhaps they've got identical-ish um, briefcases, but not those slim briefcases. They don't have those. So you're thinking more more nerdy and anoraki kind of. So well, I'm thinking of the ones that are sort of almost like kind of triangle shaped. Uh-huh. You know, with the with the catch at the top, like a big boy's purse. 
You know, talking about the 70s dystopian visions of the future, that, that vision of being on a train platform waiting for the commuter train to London, that's, for me, that's about as dystopian as it can get. It's like nightmare scenario for me. People live that life, though. I know. I can't believe it. I've, you know, half of Twitter UK commutes up from Brighton to London. I don't know how they do it. I mean, to be fair, half of them are moving to London, which is fair enough if they can, if they can find a place. I think it's hilarious that whenever there's a train problem, they all turn up at clear left, like always. <laughs> <laughs> well, our door is always open. You see? We, we're uh, we're a haven. We're a refuge. We t- we 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 take in the refugees, the train refugees. I tell you what. Let me um, let me get a quick sponsor out of the way, and then we can talk about some stuff Brighton related. Okay. But, but no, I want to talk about deconstruct. Okay, good. So our first sponsor this week is Logical Elements, and they provide training for web designers and developers across well, a whole range of technologies. And they've been writing and delivering training courses since before the web. They've been doing it for like 25 years. And today they want to talk about a new PHP for designers course. It's happening on the 28th of July. And on this course, you're going to learn core server-side scripting concepts, how PHP works and how to incorporate into web pages, useful PHP functions, content and markup management with PHP, incorporating data and content from other applications and PHP in CMSs like Expression Engine and Perch. And then there's the usual tips, tricks and gotchas. This course is going to really benefit web designers, especially those of us who work with PHP-based systems and applications. And you'll come away from the course with a much greater understanding of PHP. Then you'll get access to a base camp that contains documentation, examples, even some screencasts. And then there's the post-course follow-up if you need that. So PHP for Web Designers is actually happening at Bristol and Bath Science Park and attendance is limited to just a few places, eight, to make sure that everyone gets plenty of hands-on experience and one-to-one time. So the tickets cost just 295 that's £2 to £295, but listeners to the show, they can get 100 yes, £100 off using the offer code unfinished at the checkout. Plus, you'll get another 20% discount on any other course if you book them before the end of June. So go to unfinished.bz slash logical and find out more and book your place on PHP for web designers. God, you can tell it's early. I did that rubbish. I mean, I'll try and... There's some tongue twisters in there. I'll try and edit it to make it sound at least half coherent. <laughs> I don't know nothing about PHP whatsoever. Well, don't don't you know PHP is, is passe? PHP is like... um. It's like cupcakes. It's, it's over. It's done. Is it all swift now? Well, no, that's, that's, that's too cool. That's too cool for school. You know, it's still got to be, I don't know, Python or Ruby or whatever the cool kids are programming in. You know, people will sniff at you for, for programming PHP. They'll look down their, their noses at you. Although it's pretty much the only server side programming language I have any knowledge of. Yeah, see, I wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah, I figured it out years ago and it works for me. So I've, I've kind of stuck with it, even though there's much better programming languages out there. But, you know, there was a talk by Ar- Marco Arman um, at Webstock a couple of years ago, and he talked about the value of boring technologies, like using PHP and MySQL and these, like, you know, old hat things and not the cool stuff, just because they're, they've been around, so they're, you know, they've figured out the bugs with this stuff. Do you listen to his Accidental Tech podcast? No, I don't think I've ever listened to his podcast. I really should. Really Actually, sure. it's really, really good. I enjoy it a lot every week. And it's him and Casey Liss and John Syracuse. And he's working on a podcast app, isn't he? 
called Overcast. Right. Yeah. And strangely enough, they were taking the Mickey out of him this week after the whole Apple announced Swift. He's programming uh, Overcast in, wait for it, PHP and MySQL. There you go. See, because it, it works. It's what he's used to. And, you know, and it's, it's what he used at Tumblr and it's yeah. what he, it's what he built Instapaper in originally. So the learning, you know, it's going to, it's going to be quicker for him to build using what he knows. There's something to that. Me, on the other hand, wouldn't know where to start. See, the thing is, when I was first trying to do anything on the server side, way back in the day, um, everything had to be in Perl in a CGI bin. Remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. So then, so I had to learn how to, you know, basic things like if someone fills in a form field, I want to receive an email with that form field. That was, you know, programming. I had to do programming to figure out how to do that. So having figured out how to do some Perl, then when I came across PHP, I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is okay. Because anything seems easy compared to Pro. I remember having some, this was before web, little web books were fashionable again. This is before mm. the kind of, um, a book apart size books. But do you remember the visual quick start guides that, yeah. that new yeah. riders used to do years ago? Yeah. And I, I remember buying a whole bunch of those in borders. Yeah. I actually bought them in a bookshop and I bought, HTML and I think I bought Photoshop three or something like that. And I did actually buy Perl and CGI for beginners. I don't think I ever opened it. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you feel smart because you had the book sitting on your desk? I used to look at it and just <laughs> dream. <laughs> <laughs> like the knowledge will somehow seep out of the book and into your brain. Yes. I learned after that, that I actually have to put some effort into learning things. Yeah. Having the books on the shelf doesn't, it's not some process of osmosis. Yeah. You actually have to. Do it. Are you working on another one? Not at the moment, but um, ideas are swirling around my head. I feel like uh, a book might have to come out. You know, it's it's gestating right now, mm. alien-like, and I feel like it might need to burst, burst from my chest at some point in the future. You see, we're slipping in the film references, actually, without talking about films. This come on, is- everybody, everybody knows those references. Because, you know, the reason for writing a book is mostly because <laughs> you get angry because a book doesn't exist and you end up like going, fine, I'll write it myself then. And yeah, it's not like I want to write a book, but I, I never want to write any books. But the books that I thought should exist didn't. So I, was, I had to do them myself. No, I know exactly what you mean. And you get to a point where you think, I can't keep this in any longer. Exactly. I'm just going to have to do it. Yeah. It's like being constipated. And then having that relief when it all comes out. Ooh. Could be quite a painful activity at the time, right? I was happy with the alien references, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's more palatable. Chest bursting. Chest bursting it's, is it's, most definitely. It's more like chest bursting. Yeah. We were talking about Brighton a minute ago and I don't get down there very often. No, you, no, you don't. And the one time you were down there, I wasn't there. No, it was when I came down to do some little uh, evening do with Raoul. Yeah, it was, when, it was when all of Brighton had taken off to Austin for South by Southwest. Oh, that was it, yeah. That was a lousy time to arrange a little evening do. <laughs> he's rubbish, Raoul. He's, 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 he's a smart guy. He's doing lots of very ambitious stuff. Well, I heard because Laura was on the show last week and she was telling me all about how they're expanding and yeah. they're sort of really driving ahead with this... Um, indie phone project so yeah. yeah no it's it sounds cool my best of luck to him he's gonna need it well it's yeah he's not without ambition that's yep. for sure 
So let's talk about Deconstruct for a minute. Then. Oh, yes. So Which you've is, never been to Deconstruct? No, I've never been to a Deconstruct to my shame. Yeah. You're missing out. You really are. It's the best conference. I like the idea. I, well, okay, so I've got to be honest. Early on, mm-hmm. I don't think I got it. Well, and early I, early on, it was very different. And I don't know whether I wanted to go early on. I think I sort of got it maybe even last year because I remember listening to the uh, the audio mm-hmm. that you put out and listening to James Burke and a couple of the others, you know, people that I didn't know. Yeah, that James Burke talk, though, that was amazing. Well, I think it's the, probably the best talk I've ever heard. Uh, mind-blowing, just mind-blowing. Um, and it was exactly like... I remember him being yeah. on TV in the 70s. It was like an entire season of connections condensed <laughs> down into one talk. It was amazing. And I, I've got to confess though that I've been sort of ambivalent about conferences for yeah. a while and I can sort of understand how people want to go and learn something. You know, our, the event apart audience like this, don't they? they? It's very much a kind of practical takeaways thing. And well, I you've got to balance it. Like, if you're going to give them inspirational, that's fine, but you have to give them some practical stuff as well. So I, I sort of can understand, and I sort of went to events learning stuff. I mean, God, you know, we sat together watching Ethan talk about responsive web design for the very first time. Yeah. And, you know, that was a very kind of practical learning thing. And I never really got the the high-level stuff, the conceptual stuff, particularly when it wasn't related to the web. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that I wanted to go and sit in a room and listen to a whole load of surprises. Yeah. Didn't, didn't know that that was going to be my thing. Yeah. And, then, and I understand that, that, that view. It's, it's a tough sell, you know, it's a tough sell. But then I, I listened to, it wasn't just James Burke. It was a lot of the other talks yeah. last year. And I thought, actually, this is really good. You, you know. Yeah. That, that year, the 2012 deconstruct was probably the best conference I've ever been at ever. And I actually went to a little event. It was the Shrewsbury Shrop Geek thing. Oh, last yeah. Last year. So which was organized by Kirsty. It was organized yeah. by Kirsty, yeah. yeah. I can't go this year because we're going to be on holiday or I'm going to be away somewhere. I can't remember why now, but I, I would have gone, but I can't. And there was a guy, um, and I forget his name because I'm rubbish, but he worked at GDS or used to work at GDS and his whole talk was about how he'd built a business 3D scanning model uh, steam engines to make models of. Oh, I know. Was it uh, Chris Thorpe? Yes, that's the guy. Yeah, yeah. We had him down to do a, a skill swap here in Brighton. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, just brilliant. Yeah. And it, uh, to be honest, it was the best. I'm sorry, Laura, because you know she was there as well. But it was the best talk of the day by far. And I just thought, actually, you know, I'm getting to a point now where I'm more interested in stuff that's not about the practicalities you know brendan tweeted something yeah. the other day about how web designs become about the plumbing and we've all become plumbers indeed and actually i think i might come when is it oh excellent first friday of september september 5th let me have a look at the calendar you should come but you know i understand the the thing about the practicalities and i do realize that deconstruct is a hard sell and it's a, it's a hard sell if it's especially if you're supposed to convince your boss. I mean, we try to make the, the ticket price as cheap as possible so that you don't have to convince your boss so that you can, you know, pay out of your own pocket. A freelancer could afford it. But I do get that if you're, if you're just looking at the kind of, um, cost benefit analysis, you might think, well, I'm not going to learn any new skills. I'm not going to learn any new CSS or HTML or JavaScript skills 
so maybe I shouldn't go to deconstruct. But I think what you get out of deconstruct is is bigger and longer lasting. Which sounds really pretentious, but I I do believe it. You know, it's changed though over time. Deconstruct because when it started it was in two thousand five, um, remember there was nothing. There was there were no conferences back then, right? At Media was the first. That was the only one. I yeah. remember you announcing the first deconstruct at At Media. Yeah. Yeah. And remember, I mean, yeah, I mean, Patrick, when he put on that media, he, he, he took a huge risk because he didn't know if there would be any interest at all. He put his own money behind it. You know, it was, it was really, really brave and ambitious. But yeah, the first deconstruct was, you know, a web conference. I mean, we were talking about web, web 2.0, because that was the thing back then. But it was still about, there was, there was stuff about technologies, you know, there was JavaScript talks and, and things. And for the next year as well, it's, it was still kind of about the web. What sort of happened was, after a couple of years, there was no longer any shortage of web conferences. As, as you know, now there, you know, you can't swing a cat without hitting a web conference in the UK. Um, and so all that web development, web design stuff is being covered in other places, which kind of allowed deconstruct to change and morph over time into this more conceptual thing. And it was a gradual transition, and we may we probably lost some people along the way because, you know, if they were expecting practical stuff and then they showed up and they got this, this more, you know, entertaining, big picture, make you think kind of stuff. I think you had some negative feedback along those lines. Yeah, a couple of years a ago, a couple of years ago, there was definitely we hadn't made we hadn't set the expectations properly, and so I, I really learned from that. So for 2012, I was making it really clear, not so much what to expect, but what not to expect. Right. To make it clear, you will not see any code on the screen. You will not learn how to use Photoshop at this conference. Uh, and then we kind of, by then we'd passed through that rough phase and we, and you know, the, the terms of engagement were established and people knew what they were getting. And then it was, it was pretty great. And now, yeah, I think it's really sort of found its, its feet and found what it is. But I think it's also become tougher. I mean, if we wanted, you know, to put on an easy conference, then we'd, yeah, we'd put on a conference about web development, web design, and we'd have talks about, CSS and JavaScript and all that and everything will be fine. Putting on a conference with, you know, Warren Ellis, uh, speaking, it's, it's, um, that's a tougher sell. And I guess I'm going to have to be doing marketing and selling. And I have no idea how to do that stuff, but I'm going to have to Uh-oh. do it through the power of proper URLs than mm. proper URL design. Yes. I've actually been able, without going to Google and Googling 2005's deconstruct, I could just go to the URL and change it. Yeah. See, that's a, that's design. And it's still online. And right? it's still there. Ten which years is later, fine. still online. And we've got the audio from every single deconstruct talk right now, from the start. I'm just looking at it here. So who did we have in 2005? Andy Bud, uh, Stuart Langridge yeah, on yeah. DOM scripting and Ajax, Ajax and Flickr, Simon Willison. Um, he doesn't age. Some no, he's, he's he's the Cliff Richard of uh, of the web. I think that he sleeps in a sort of a a sort of I don't know some sort of liquid like Daredevil does that keeps him young and replenished. That keeps him replenished. I think that's what happens. Yeah. Um, ben Metcalf, Tom Hume. Oh, here we go. Ral Balkan on the state of the art of the Flash platform. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's and we, we, we actually have. had him back in t- 2006 and he was talking about flex flex that was remember flex it was a flash do, thing yeah yeah no i do remember the only the only thing is is that his is the only talk where you don't have uh, slides and audio yeah for some reason he didn't want us publishing the 
the audio. That's right. That's the one we don't have from uh, 10 years, well, nine years coming on 10 years of Deconstruct. That's one talk we don't have the audio from. That's funny. So I was looking at the new site and uh, I, the, I love the biographies. The speaker biographies are, I think this is the best bit. Yeah. It is. It's the best bit. Well, it's clearly so the best I don't bit know who because, wrote those. Because look, the, the, the design of the site, it was just something I bashed out quickly. A um, little help from one of the designers, but really it's, it's, it's pretty ropey. I'm actually working on a redesign right now to make it look better. But the content, if we can use that word, which is not such a nice word, the content. Um, yes, that was the hard part. And that I'm, I'm actually pretty pleased with. Who wrote that then? That was me. <laughs> that was all me. That's, that's my tone of voice right there. <laughs> I read Brian Suda's is great. Brian Suda is an informatician, which is definitely a real word and not something he made up <laughs> once. <laughs> it's pretty cromulent. What yeah, the hell did It's that a perfectly mean? cromulent word. It's a Simpsons <laughs> reference. Oh, okay. We see. I don't it's know. Perfectly cromulent word. Never mind. See, lost, lost on you. So this is the thing. I'm supposed to be convincing people that they should come to this conference. And yet what I'm writing is probably incomprehensible. I need to learn how to write like a marketer. You need some buzzwords is what you need. Yeah. You need to talk about leveraging um, the synergies, leveraging the synergies. Exactly. Yeah, no, can't do that. And anyway, that's that would, that wouldn't be the best way to describe. If you went to deconstruct expecting that kind of thing, you'd be disappointed. You should totally come. Cause this year is going to be good. It's going to be really good. It's going to well, be fun. I have just checked the calendar and I'm not doing anything on that day except recording this podcast. And if I look at my notes, God, this is an interesting thing. Andy looks at a spreadsheet. <laughs> what a fabulous podcast this is. Uh, who is on that day? Um, what is that? You, could, you could do a live from Deconstruct podcast, just do roving, roving microphone. Do you know what? I could easily do that. I'm here at Brighton. I'm speaking to attendees at Deconstruct. Hello, sir. How are you? Well, no, I bought some recording equipment. Um, I bought one of those lovely kind of, what are they called? Uh, little portable recorders and a couple of condenser mics. Oh yeah. The ones that look like a taser. Yes. Those yeah, ones. Yeah. yeah so great. I've actually got one of those and I've tested it and they work really well. Yeah, because really good. I bought it because I was going to take it to Iraq, but I don't know whether I'm actually going to get to Iraq now. Yeah. Looking at uh, slightly dodgy. Um, only slightly. Yeah. So and come to we, Brighton instead. <laughs> we digress. Only slightly less dangerous. Brighton. For those times when you can't get to Iraq. I did tell Brad Frost to, uh, to bring his, his, uh, his bulletproof vest when he was coming to Brighton. He didn't quite yeah. believe me. Yeah. Brighton's a lovely town, honestly. As long as you stay out of certain parts on the weekend. I said it was like Detroit, <laughs> but with more crime. There's only one street like that and you just avoid that street. So this year's deconstruct, the theme is living with the network. Living with the network. Yeah. Cryptically. We every, yeah. Well, every year the theme is sort of specific, but actually quite broad. You know, like two years ago it was playing with the future and last year it was communicating with machines, but it means that there is a theme running through it and it really is curated. I mean, I've literally lost sleep, you know, thinking about the curation of the, the conference and it pays off, but the theme can't be too confined. Otherwise you end up thinking, Oh, well, I can't have the speaker because it doesn't quite fit the theme. You want it to be, you know, just broad enough um, to allow for a good mix of stuff. So, yeah, living with the network feels timely to me. Could go in a couple of different directions. I think it'll be good. And you know what? There's going to be a bunch of stuff happening around Deconstruct 2. So um, earlier that week, there's the Reasons to be Creative conference. And then the weekend, sort of two days right after, Deconstruct. There's a maker fair in Brighton, which is always fantastic. 
And there's also Indie Web Camp that'll be happening at the, uh, the Clear Left building. So there's going to be a bunch of reasons to be in Brighton. Oh, and the Brighton and Hove Food Festival will be on. Ah, you see, that's, you, know, you yeah. just sold it to me. There you go. You, never mind all the, all the, all the, all that nerdy stuff. The Ponty nerdy stuff. Yeah. Food. No, no, no. Food stalls. It's going to be good. Might even get a brioche. Anyway, talking about URLs, mm. let's move on to some things that people might actually want to listen to. <laughs> if we must. If we have to. But I'm sure you have an opinion on what Apple have decided to do in terms of not showing the full URL path. Yeah, I have, I have opinions, all right. I mean, I've, I feel like I've blogged myself out on this one. I've kind of, you know, said, I've said my say, but, um, yeah, I, I don't approve would be the, would be the short way of putting it. Uh, I feel it's infantilizing. I mean, as it is, so they've been trying this already on iOS since the last update, right? On uh, yes. Safari. And I don't know about you, but I find it incredibly annoying, like really off putting. I actually hadn't noticed. Well, I haven't noticed in a while because I switched to using Chrome on um, on iOS. And even though it's the same rendering, it's not really a different browser because it's the same rendering engine under the hood. They're not allowed to have a different rendering engine. At least uh, Chrome on Safari shows full URL. But that's not something they're going to continue with, though, I, I imagine. Because did they... Google wanted to change it for Chrome on the desktop. Yeah, and uh, they've now backed down from that. They've now decided, no, that's not a good idea. So what's interesting is the reasons why they were investigating it was just, and because some people were like having conspiracy theories about why Google might want to do this. And, you know, that's because they're trying to kill the web, blah, blah, blah. And I, I don't hold with any of that. I think actually their reasonings and their motivations were, were honorable and noble, which was, it was a security issue to make it clear what domain you're on so you don't get fished. But the solution was like, you know, blowing somebody's head off to cure their toothache. It, Yes, the toothache is gone, but you've, you've lost everything that you might want to keep. So, um, it's kind of backwards thinking to me, because if it's a security issue, what you need to be doing is making people more mindful of where they are, right? Making them more aware of what URL they're at. And by basically scrubbing the URL so it's not even visible, it ha that has the opposite effect to me. Um, what's funny is that when people, you know, when I was discussing this, um, on Twitter, uh, this is more to do with Apple doing it. Nobody's bringing up the security argument at all. Nobody seems to be thinking that this is a good idea of security. They're all like, oh no, URLs are ugly and so we need to hide them from, from the user. Um, yeah, which I find particularly patronizing. It's just tidier, I suppose. I mean, I can understand the whole security angle. I mean, I think that's. The security, no, I, I understand the motivation good. for the security yeah. angle, but the solution, as a solution, it's, a, it's the opposite solution to what you want because it makes people less mindful. It's like teaching people not to look even at that URL bar when they, in fact, what you need to be doing is making them more mindful of where they are. Tom Morris did a really good blog post about this. You know, there's a mismatch when security, whereas most of the time on the web, yeah, you want to be giving people a, a, an experience where they don't have to think, right? Where it's like, you know, don't make them have to do much working out. Just get them what they need as quickly as possible. But when it comes to security, you kind of have to flip that on its head and say, you need to be aware of where you are. You need to think about what you're doing. So to apply that first mindset to solving a security problem just doesn't work. But that's separate to what I presume Apple's doing. Apple haven't given any reason, obviously, because Apple don't talk um, publicly about anything. You know, and Their idea of a web developer program is um, you having to log in behind a firewall to look at videos from a conference once a year. 
So they're not going to talk about their motivations for this. You know, we must simply accept what Apple have decided is in our best interest. You know, because they're, uh, they know best. Nanny, Nanny Apple knows, knows what's best for you. It kind of turns URLs into AOL keywords. Yeah. Yeah. Or it turns full URLs into like this power user feature. This is the thing where, um, some people were pushing back you know, at me. I was saying, I think this is a bad idea. Um, people saying, yeah, no, it's only for the power users. You know, power users only care about URLs. The power users will be fine. Like we'll figure out a way to expose the full URLs. We'll, we'll have, I don't know, a command line hack or we'll, we'll know how to, how to, you know, make a switch to show the full URLs. It's not the power users I'm worried about. It's, it's the everyday users who have had this decision taken out of their hands for them. That, really rankles with me. What is it about URLs that people find so, I don't know, offensive in a way? I mean, I know that Twitter has a lot to do with it in terms of squeezing links into 140 characters, but there was something I saw, and I, I need to dig out the link, but there was something I saw, I think Daring Fireball linked to it, John Gruber, the other mm. day, um, about short URLs and about how when you're posting a short URL to Twitter and then it gets wrapped in a t.co. Yeah, there was somebody who's like seven redirects. That was it. Seven, yeah. seven three oh ones before you actually got to the final destination. Terrible, terrible performance. Yeah. I mean, URL shorteners are just an abomination, just a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. But that's, that's, that's kind of something separate. I think this sort of, this, um, sort of sniffy attitude towards URLs, like they're, they're a bit dirty. Like they're a bit nasty. I think that comes more from um, this compulsion people have to constantly be comparing the web to native. I, I see it all the time where people are like talking about the web platform, so they can talk about the web platform in the same way you have, you know, iOS or Android or, or Windows 8, these other platforms, or the way people talk about what they build as web apps because we have native apps. And just talking about a website, you know, that's that's um, that's too pedestrian. Right, that's not good enough. No, no, this is a web app. So I kind of see it the same with the URLs. It's like, oh, URLs, that's very, that smells of the web. And, uh, we're better than that. We're as good as native. So we don't even need URLs, single page apps. That's what we are on a web platform. So it's because, I mean, the, the URLs are, are the most webby thing there is, right? I mean, in, in native apps, you can build your native app in HTML and CSS and you can program it in JavaScript. And everything will be received over HTTP. So those aspects of the web, actually, you can do on the desktop or on mobile native environments. But URLs, that's something pretty specific to the web itself. So that's the final thing that, you know, that's, in my opinion, it's the web's greatest strength by, by a long shot. Like HTML could change, HTTP could evolve, but URLs are, you know, really the, the killer feature of the web. And so if people are, are are trying for some reason to just make the web be like any other platform, like native, then yeah, the URLs are, are this like embarrassing vestigial part of of what makes the web so great. So let's kill them. Careful now, yeah. Your URL's hanging out. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're showing actually that you're on the web. Don't you want to be native? Bitter, me. I think it's a, a very interesting direction that we seem to be taking. Um, and it seems to be taking us, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later on because, you know, I know you want to maybe catch up on some of the other stuff that we've been talking about, but it, it's sort of indicative of that direction of it kind of, I don't know, web stuff because it's on the web. It has to be a product. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I say, I think it's this sort of inferiority complex that the web has when it compares itself to native. And so they spend all their time trying to make themselves more like native. Yes. Yeah, so that what you build isn't a website, it's a product or it's an experience. 
Um, it's an app, you know, on the web. Um, as if there's something wrong with just being a website. Exactly. And in the process, you end up losing the very thing that makes the web so great, right? That addressability. Um, and that, and the, the possibility of how something that can last over time, you know, native things will last for a few months, maybe a year tops before there's a new operating system out. Um, was on the web, you could have a website online for years available at the same URL, you know, using, using the same technology, evolving it all the time, adding to it, but not breaking it. That's pretty amazing. And that's exactly what people want to throw away. Starting with the URLs. I'm just going to write everything on medium from now on. <laughs> Don't get me started. Let me do another sponsor. Okay. Talking of apps. Cause our next sponsor, it's not really an app. Is Shopify. So you are about one of the only people in the world that remembers this, Jeremy Keith. Mm -hmm. But do you remember that we stuff and nonsense? We designed and we developed an e-commerce site for Disney Store I way, remember. way back, yeah. two thousand five, two thousand six, and it was the first large-scale e-commerce site. People say anyway that used CSS for layout. And it was pretty early after things like, for example, do you remember when Lycos? <laughs> Actually, do you remember Lycos? I do. I remember Lycos. <laughs> and Lycos went for a CSS layout yeah. and it was a, it was a big deal. And, um, anyway, the Disney store that we did got quite widely talked about. And it, even Jeffrey put it into the second edition of designing with web standards, which made me incredibly happy. And we did a lot of e-commerce projects back then and, you know, we developed our own little platform, but to be honest, you know, I didn't really enjoy e-commerce that much. Weren't you, weren't you working on like .net? It was, well, that was the, the business partner that we had. Yeah. Um, he was a, a, a .net guy. Yeah. Um, so it was all based on that and it was, everything was based on, um, XSLTs. Mm. There was no database. It was all flat files and XSLTs and Lord knows how it managed all together. But anyway. So anyway, I got out of that and I vowed that I would never do a work on another e-commerce site again. And I stuck with that really until Shopify tempted me back because Shopify is the e-commerce platform that many people who I know and respect all use. And that, you know, that's important to me. And Shopify has actually just turned eight years old and now it powers over a hundred thousand e-commerce stores online. That's a lot. And those include eight faces, a book apart who Obviously make essential books for people that make websites and yours <laughs> and my book. Yeah. <laughs> Hardcraft. Uh, they make my favorite cases and sleeves for phones and stuff. United pixel workers and five simple steps that obviously published my book much thicker than yours. And if you look at those sites, you'd never know that they were built using Shopify. And you know, if everybody else like that puts their trust in Shopify, then I know that I do too. And it's more than just an e-commerce platform. They've got a partner program that helps you make more from your business making e-commerce websites. And that's your gateway to building sites with Shopify. So when you join their free partner program, you get access to all of their learning resources, documentation and video tutorials. And they even run workshops. I think I saw that Keir was running one in Milton Keynes coming up with the Milton Keynes crew. That looks interesting. And you can learn while making any number of fully featured and non-time-limited development shops that are available via your partner dashboard. And then you can create a Shopify theme for a client if you want, or you can build your own theme from scratch, and you can sell it in their theme store. Plus, through the partner program, you earn a 20% revenue share for every store that you bring to Shopify. So Shopify is now the platform that I recommend to all my clients, 
and you should join their partner program too. It's free and you should go to unfinished.bz slash Shopify and that'll let them know that you heard about them here on Unfinished Business. I should see if they want to uh, sponsor Deconstruct. They'd be a good fit. They'd be a very good fit. Yeah, talk to Kier. Yeah, I'll talk to Kier about that. Yeah. So you like science, don't you? I do. I like science a lot. Yes. You you admire scientists. Yeah, yeah. I like science. Organized Science Hack Day a few years back, which has since gone on to do fabulous things around the world. So it's been kind of amazing to watch. I think scientists are rubbish. Well, now you're you're kind of tarring everyone with the same brush there, aren't you? We're not. I promise we won't talk about moon landings. No, there oh, are two good. things. Because <laughs> otherwise, it could be a very short podcast. I'll be flipping um, a table with you. No, I learned many, many years ago not to argue with you about anything, and certainly not about moon landing hoaxes. Don't don't argue with me about anything that's evidence based. Would be my advice. <laughs> anyway, there are things. There are two things I've been thinking recently that scientists haven't done and they should have done. Go on, mammoths. Mm-hmm. Why haven't they cloned mammoths? Okay, you need to keep up because that's exactly what the Long Now Foundation are working on. Really? So Stuart Brand, who's you know he was around, he was doing the whole Earth catalog in the sixties, uh, and then. You know, started along now foundation. He's written books, environmentals. Right now, his big thing is the de-extinction project. They're going to begin with the passenger pigeon, because that's, you know, relatively recent extinction, extinction, right? That was what, end of the 19th century. Um, but sure, woolly mammoth. Let's make it happen. The de-extinction project. Next. Number two. This has been on my mind a lot. Genetically engineered tiny animals. I'm not talking about baby animals. Mm. No, 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 no. Adult animals, but in miniature. So imagine if you had a hippo that was just the size of a guinea pig. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there has been some work done on this, but I feel perhaps this is one of those situations where the scientists would be channeling Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park and asking themselves, you know, just because they can, does it mean they should? Just because Andrew Clark wants to see dwarfism in animals is it necessary is that a good enough reason to do it how cool would that be though you know on a from a practical side it's like the opposite of what you want to do because well, you want to make them big well yeah if you want to get you know high yields if um we're going to use them instead of mechanization oh my god are you thinking about like a 20 foot rabbit well yeah or going back to not necessarily mammoth but you know um mastodons in general that we could engineer to be even larger and get more energy out of uh, when the, when the oil goes on a wheel, oh mega hamsters, mega mega hamster delivered electricity. Yeah, so actually, what you want to be doing is making them bigger, not smaller. Hmm, no, but do you know what the coolest miniature animal would be though? Uh, a hippopotamus. No, no, we've had that, and then that be that be just like a guinea pig size. Imagine if there was a. This is the cutest thing: mm-hmm. a giraffe that's no bigger than a cat. That that would be cute. Scientists should make that happen. Yeah. Well, it would starve. What are they playing at? Well, no, they just they just eat lower bushes. So you'd have to have bonsai trees and miniature giraffes together. I haven't thought this through, have I? Yeah. You you have to make a whole ecosystem. If you if you're going to play play with with nature like that, you have to you have to think through the consequences. I was watching something on the TV the other day about lionfish, and apparently they took. Asian lionfish mm-hmm. 
to, I don't know, aquarium in yeah, Miami there, or something like that. There are huge invasive species in the Gulf of Mexico now. And in the, yeah, and is that the Caribbean? Uh, well, that's the other side, but I was in the, um, aquarium in Atlanta, um, two years ago when I was there for a vent apart. And yeah, lionfish are all over, um, southern United States, which is crazy. No, I just, people shouldn't just mess with that. I mean, I joke about scientists, but no. they shouldn't mess with stuff. That's nothing really. to do with scientists. That's to do with idiots bringing in invasive species. So when you're in the southern states of America and you see those vines all over the place, right? The kudzu vines. That's an invasive species. That's from Japan. That wasn't any genetic engineering. That was, that was people bringing perfectly, uh, quote unquote, natural things into an ecosystem where they don't belong. It's Australia all over again, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so it's mixed mitosis time. So you mentioned that you wanted to follow up and talk about some of the things that we've been covering in previous episodes. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I thought you had some thought provoking, uh, conversations. We try. Um, like when you and Jeffrey, we're talking about Mad Men and uh, advertising. It sounded like you were almost wistful and and like you were missing those days of, you know, the big the big reveal and the big pitch and, and the way that people would work by going away into a room and thinking up the idea and then presenting the idea. It sounded like you actually thought that would be a good way of working? Not in terms of the process. That's a really good question, actually, because one of the things that I've learned in all the years that we've been doing this is that the big reveal rarely works mm -hmm. and the clients generally can't afford the big reveal anyway. And, you know, we can't afford to work with people that <laughs> in that way, yeah. because if you get it wrong, then it's back to the drawing board. And I suppose it would have worked in, in, in the old days when um, and it may still work that way with large agencies where they go, okay, well, we didn't, um, we didn't hit it this time. Let's go back in and do two more weeks work. And, you know, the clients being billed the whole time. Mm. I don't know. I don't know about you, but we don't work on those no, kind of projects. No, no that's, that just seems incredibly inefficient. The whole reveal thing, actually what I do. And in fact, I'm starting a project next week. We've got six weeks work booked with, um, a company in Manchester. And I'm going to be working there two or three days a week, literally on site with them because, you know, they've got a time scale to, to work to, and it's just going to be much more efficient. And I'm going to understand what they want to achieve much more easily by literally sitting in the same room. Yep. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I'm not wistful about the whole, um, big reveal part of it. I'm more, I was wistful about the, was it the emphasis on ideas? It was the emphasis on ideas. And I wrote a little bit about this. I wrote mm. a blog post last week um, about Mad Men and the computer that they installed yeah. and how um, how the, the people in the show viewed the technology. Mm -hmm. um, and thinking more about how that kind of applies now. And I, and I think I, it's, it's a, a loose set of thoughts that are kind of um, yeah, no, I, I think converging. That's, yeah, I think that's a separate thing. And I agree with you there that generally right now, I feel like there's a lot of emphasis on tools. Um, well, it's, there is a lot of emphasis on tools. And the conversations that people are having, not just about tools, but also about process, seem to leave out a lot of what I think is fundamentally important to making something that changes, you know, changes people thinking. I, I agree that there's an overemphasis on tools, but I think you are perhaps overemphasizing this idea of the, the idea, the, the, the flash of inspiration. 
which I, I think is, is a, a very risky way to work. Like, oh, better hope I get that flash of inspiration. Otherwise, you know, this project will never get done. And B, I, I think it's overrated as a, as this almost like mystical thing. But in fact, it's just work. It's just something you can, you can exercise or you can churn out ideas the same way you can churn out anything else. And in fact, you, you can train yourself to come up with ideas. But no, you seem, you seem to be, you seem to be talking about it almost like it was this, um, like a mythical experience. Yeah. No, not like that at all. Because, um, you know, you, you, I sometimes want to go away into a room and I'll think of 25 somethings. You know, 25. Mm -hmm. I remember, yeah. Jason, remember Jason Santa Maria talking about this yeah, yeah. Uh, in his talk where he had to, one of the things he had to do at art school was to come up with a hundred different ways of representing the telephone. Right. And yeah. I think he got to about six before he'd gone through all yeah. of the. And then it starts to get interesting. <laughs> it, gets, it gets really interesting. So it's not about that necessarily. It's not about this thing it being like, wow, I, only I can come up with this fabulous idea because I am, you know, mythical kind of mm. ad man or whatever. It's not about that. My beef at the moment, and again, it's, it's only a sort of a loose set of random thoughts is that instead of somebody actually having that creative exercise or that creative spark in a way, mm -hmm. and the, and not just about that, but about the confidence to then deliver it, people seem to be very, very risk averse and very, uh, focused on for example, research, testing, et cetera, which to me is very valid, but it's like the ultimate delegation. It's like the ultimate, I'm not going to take responsibility because I'm just going to test it, right? I'm not going to have a brilliant idea because I'm going to go out and research it. And I was reading a book, actually. I've just got it behind me. Let me just go, go and get this book. But it sounds to me like you're setting these up at polar opposites, like you can either have the ideas or you can do the research, whereas in fact the research can be used to validate the idea. Or invalidate it, which is more useful. You come up with an idea that you think is awesome, um, but then you do the research and find out, no, actually, it was a really, it was a crap idea. I think for, in terms of validation, then, yeah, that, yes, that's extremely important. But from what I gather anyway, maybe I'm misreading it, but I must, if I'm misreading it, then I'm mis mm -hmm. misreading it everywhere. Um, the emphasis is on, for example, this almost kind of mechanical process of validation to come up with something. Um, and it's like, I mean, I did say in a blog post or on stage or something, you can't iterate a bad idea into a brilliant one. No, but you can easily, you can easily find out that your idea is bad by using research, right? Or you can easily verify your idea is good by using research. And I get what you're saying because from the outside, what it looks like is that the, the process of design, if, because you're using research, um, at every stage, just looks very, yeah, mechanical and it looks inevitable. Like there's this inevitable outcome. To my mind, that's a good thing. Like the design process should feel inevitable. It's almost like at the end of, you know, you're working with the client, not for the client, right? And at the end of it, the client should think, well, look like we didn't need your help after all. Cause you know, we came up with this stuff and it was clearly obvious what the solution was. That, that thing that's obvious in hindsight and that the whole process at no point does it have any surprises or any big reveals. And that it does feel inevitable, which is a really unsexy way of approaching design, but I think more truthful and more honest. I've got this book in my hand here. It's called The Advertising Concept Book by Pete Barry. I mm -hmm. picked this up a couple of weeks ago yeah. and uh, only just started to read it. But 
page 11. So we're, we're already sort of, you know, only sort of, you know, a dozen pages in and I'm starting to like nod my head as mm. I'm reading it. And there's a particular paragraph here. It talks about, and I'll just read this bit out here. It says, we all know about advertising's potential to change the way people think enough to sell a product in the billions. And that, I thought, ah, actually, you know, this is what I think I want to do is to change the way people think about a product, not make the product easier for them to use. Right. So that's the first thing. I don't mm-hmm. want to change the way, I don't want, I don't want to change what people do. Yep. I want to change how they think. That's why I got into design. Okay, so you're not interested in behavior change. No. I want to change the thinking behind things. So it says here, advertising is powerful even at a very local level as well as on a national global one. For example, years ago, I was disgusted with the amount of dog poop along the tree-lined sidewalk outside my apartment. The guilty dog owners were clearly ignoring many resident signs, most of which were either witty or insulting, but unsuccessful nonetheless. So I decided to have a stab. In the worst hit area, I placed a temporary sign on a tree which simply read, this is a sidewalk, not a toilet followed by the usual plea, clean up your dog. I wanted the tone to be direct, yet slightly condescending. As I left for work the next day, I noticed my sign had disappeared, and I assumed an angering dog owner had removed it, but when I returned later, it was back. And not only that, but every tree on the block had a photocopied version of the sign stapled to it, and within a day, the poop had gone, and it's yet to return, right? And I think, wow, that is somebody having confidence in their idea. Now, no, if no, it no. Was, that, that sounds like behavior change. That sounds like the opposite of what you're talking about. But what I'm thinking is like, here's a guy that has an idea and thinks, right, this is how, this is how we're going to play this out. If we're talking about, maybe I'm wrong, but if we're talking about a kind of research UX, let's just you call it UX for want of a better phrase, right? In my mind, anyway, if a, if a UX person was going to redesign a sign, they would have researched for two weeks what kind of dogs walking up and down the street, what time of day they were doing, what kind of poop they were leaving, and then they'd have two or three different versions of the damn sign, and they'd be testing it to find out which was the most effective. Or, or they do a quick prototype by throwing up one sign, they see that it works, and they follow that, they have their idea validated. That's another way of looking at it. But can you see what I'm getting at? I can, except you see the example you've just given there is the opposite of the advertising world. That's an example of a real need, right, and coming up with a, a, a solution that... that causes behavior change. That's the opposite of what the advertising world does. The advertising world is probably, if not the most disgusting, then one of the most disgusting industries that exist uh, in our world. I, probably arms dealing would be, I'd, I'd say, is, is worse. <laughs> but advertising in general, the idea that, that, you know, oh, we need to cause behavior change, we need to call, change the way people think just so that we can sell more of something, probably something that people don't even need. So your objection then is... Because it's, you think that advertising is trying to sell something that somebody. Well, I, I kind of, I objected at, at all levels. Like if we're going back to the madman example, first of all, like, as we said, the way they work, the process, terrible, terrible, terrible. The whole industry geared around things like awards and coffee table books. Awful, awful, awful way to, because people end up working for awards instead of working towards, you know, what the right solution should be. And, and yeah, then the moral aspect or the lack of, of morals in that people, uh, advertising things that they don't actually believe in and things that are actively harmful in the world. People working on things that they don't, you know, have that vested interest in. It's, yeah, one of, one of the worst industries I could possibly think of. I actually think advertising is a form of censorship in the way that it, it, it impinges on, on people's lives every day. Horrific. I think that the way that we experience advertising can be terrible. 
You know, being interrupted by anything when we're trying to do something else, that, that's never going to be good. That's never well, like, going to be like, a good um, experience. Like, like talking about sponsors on a podcast. Well, okay, okay. You know, effective advertising is kidnapping somebody's family and holding a gun to their head and saying, you have to buy this product or we shoot your family. That well, works. I think that's, I don't, well, I think that's slightly more exist like the, Yeah, you know, it is. But what I'm saying is if, if your justification for doing something is it works, then uh, there's plenty of things that work that aren't morally justifiable. Well, absolutely right. I th- the thing that inspires me about advertising is that there are, it creates things that are memorable. And in the same way that you and I remember Soylent Green and can, you know, think about a film that was made in what, 1973 and who was in it and everything else. Advertising creates iconic memories. You know, we can all remember particular ads or particular posters or particular, uh, TV ads or spots or jingles or whatever. When was the last time there was a bloody memorable website? But it doesn't, it's not, it's not the same thing. We don't make the same quality of work. Memorable in, in and of itself is not, is not a positive nor negative trait. It's just a trait. It's just something is memorable. It doesn't make it good or bad. Not necessarily, no. And I don't know whether it needs to be necessarily good or bad. Or in fact, whether if, if memorable is what you're going for, then, you know, you like to come up with those really annoying jingles or those really shocking ads just to make it memorable. And then you get into that Red Queen arms race of the advertising industry trying to, out to out shock, out out memorabilize one another. Do you and remember boo.com? I do remember boo.com. You see, boo.com, I would think, is the sort of web equivalent of what you think I mean by good advertising. In that it was memorable but terrible all at the same time. Yeah, well, well sure. I mean, it was that's just that's just two terrible things. You know, I I think the only thing they have in common is they're both terrible. Advertising and boo.com. Not all advertising is terrible. I'm trying to think of advertising that isn't. You can't tell me that you don't admire certain TV spots. I mean, if you can remember them or you think that they were fantastic. I mean, we talked about PG tips, chimps. I mean, you know, there were some terrible things about chimpanzees, but the actual campaign itself was genius. Um, John Hegarty's, uh, ads for Levi's in the nineties. We only had like four TV channels. We had to watch that crap. We didn't have a choice. Now, finally, with the, with the network, with the internet, we can choose what to watch. We can, we can treat advertising as the damage that it is and root around it. I hate being interrupted when I'm watching a TV show. I don't watch live TV unless mm-hmm. it's Biggest Loser, right? <laughs> or, a year to save my life because uh, just like Drew and Rachel, I really like fat programs. It's, it's my thing. Okay. It's like some, sometimes I'll sit there sort of early evening and I'll flick on Sky. There's not a fat program on. It's, I'm out of there. But you know, talking about, you know, the moral aspect of taking on work, shouldn't it surely be that you would want to take on the worst companies because to change how people think about that would be the real challenge to take on work by an arms dealer and uh, say, Oh, can I change the way that people think about arms dealing? Now there's a design challenge for you. No, but then, then that, I think that's a challenge too far because why would you want to change somebody's feelings about arms dealers? I mean, interesting, yeah. Um, and a clear left, everyone has a veto basically. So if there's if there's a firm or company that somebody feels, you know, is morally not someone who should be working with, then every single employee has a veto on that. Ooh, tell me about that then. Yeah, just just, that, just in case, you know, we just I don't, I don't know if the new employees know about that. I need to make it make it clearer, but yeah. Um, 
If there's a company someone's uncomfortable with the idea of clear left working with that company, then they can exercise a veto and say, yeah, we, we shouldn't work with that company. Does that mean that the whole company doesn't do the job or yeah. that guy doesn't get to no, work no, no, on that, that thing? No, 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 we would say, okay, then we won't, we won't pursue, we won't pursue that contract. For instance, I would never work for the WIPO. World Intellectual Property Organization. Yep. They were one of my clients two years ago. I know. I know. And for me, arms dealers, advertising industry, WIPO. Actually, no, WIPO is probably worse than the advertising industry. Because of the whole pattern deal. Yeah. They're basically setting out to destroy culture. In the same way that the arms industry sets out to destroy lives for profit, they're setting out to destroy the entire world's culture for a short-term gain. I don't think that they actually necessarily profit from... Oh, they have... <laughs> they, they're part of the United Nations. Yeah, yeah, and they have an active campaign, and they get a lot of lobbying from you know interest groups in the States to, to strong-arm other countries into, into playing ball with their restrictive policies. Do you talk about this on your website? No, um, I don't. I mean, other people do. Not on do your website, it, but I, on Clear Left. Um, oh, our, our, our veto? No, no, that's an internal thing. That's an internal company thing. You know, I would imagine, you know, it must be other companies do that as well. You know, where they just make it clear if you have a problem with a particular client or industry, let us know so we won't, you know, won't put you in that situation. That's fascinating there because I can imagine it working. It works for, you know, a little company like ours and it might, mm. it might work to, uh, you know, a certain size. But then I'm thinking, well, you, you're not, Clearlift isn't small anymore. It's like no. 30 people. Well, we're up to 19 people now. Oh, 19. Yeah, 19. Oh, I was just expanding you by another, <laughs> yeah. by another image. No, God, no. I mean, 19 feels really big to me now. It's a bit, it's a bit scary actually how big it feels. You know, trying, still trying to maintain that, that small feeling with 19 people. It's tricky. I think they call that culture. Yeah, the culture, exactly. The company culture, uh, feeling the strain. Got to work at it. You know, it's something that as you get bigger, I think you have to really work hard to, to maintain the culture you want. I'm just, I'm just thinking about why you have such a disdain though for advertising. Yeah, fundamentally um, what it's trying to do is, um, you know, sell, sell people things they don't need, uh, with money they don't have. But do you have the same feeling about, for want of a better word, salesmen? Um, yeah, generally. Cause I'm um, thinking that you perceive the advertising industry like the guy that's, that turns up at your doorstep and tries to sell you stuff that you don't need. He interrupts you, yeah. he makes you go to the door. He says, good. Nice, you know, nice set of encyclopedias. Exactly. Or perhaps some cloths. Yeah. Some cleaning cloths. Yeah. That's advertising. But but that's actually see, better that's, than advertising because you got the personal touch. You got the well, if touch. that's bad advertising because it's interrupting you in the wrong places, and I and I can't bear watching that. I will I will watch TV shows in any other way if I can on iTunes. I buy TV. I buy yeah. season passes on so iTunes. You you, you so root around the advertising. The yeah, you treat so the I advertising root around the ads. Famous. Yeah, yeah. And I but I root around the ads because. Um, because I don't want them, I don't want them interrupting me at that point. And there are some ads that are truly terrible. If you, you know, anybody that, oh my God, Brian the robot from confused.com. I just want to like, you know, there's a piece of technology that you'd want to smash in a kind of Luddite way. But that's just inappropriate advertising or it's inappropriate advertising in an inappropriate time. Good advertising may, may make you want to buy one product over another, but it's successful when it's in context. Maybe I could see it if I have asked for information. If I walk into a shop or I ask someone, excuse me, can you give me information on this product and why I should buy this product? But when it's shoved in my face, you know, from a billboard, from the side of a bus, 
on the television, in a magazine. She's magazines. We've done the, you know, pages to advertising count in the magazines. Why do magazines even cost money, considering how much they get from advertising? Well, that, that is a very good point. Right. And it's that, that's, it's the out of context nature. Like you're saying, you're being interrupted, constantly being interrupted. The irony is when I actually, you know, seek something out and I walk into a shop and I want information, that's, that's often where, because they've spent so much on the advertising, they haven't left enough money for the customer service to explain, you know, the facts around the product and why I would want to buy it. Well, maybe you only want to buy it because you've heard about the advertising. You've thought about that. <laughs> yeah, that's been, it's been neurolinguistically programmed into me. It's been subliminally attached into my brain in an effective kind of way because the ad was so shocking or the ad was so memorable. It just seems to me as if you object to what you think advertising is, like, you know, personified by the cheap salesman, because it's just interrupting you the whole time with stuff that you don't want. That's advertising. But that's not necessarily advertising, because in the middle of that, somewhere in the middle of that, is really great ideas, really good work, really clever copywriting, really clever visual um, work. I'm not um, arguing with the effectiveness. It's very effective. But not necessarily the effectiveness, but, but the stuff itself. You can think of ads that are, you know, memorable, uh, distinctive. Yeah, that, I, could, I can think you of... You look at that and you go, wow, that's clever. I can think of bowel movements that were memorable as well. It doesn't make me a fan of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something could be memorable and distinctive. It doesn't make it a good thing in and of itself. That's just a trait. That's just a property of the thing. How far do you take this, though? Do you take this down to, for example, and we promised we wouldn't talk about films, but, you know, film posters. What mm. is the difference between an iconic film poster, the original 1977 Star Wars poster? Which I have on my, I have on my wall. Which I know you have on your wall. <laughs> um, and a classic ad of, let's say, um, I mean, the one that everybody always points to is the, is the 60s VW Beetle lemon ad, right? What is the, what is the difference between the, those two? The poster things? is not advertising the movie for me anyway. The poster, it's serving a different purpose, which is that it's a souvenir of the movie, right? It's purpose You've as You've turned it into a souvenir. Yeah, yeah. When it existed, it was supposed to advertise something, and I wouldn't have been interested because I hadn't seen the movie. But now that I have, I've made up my mind, I want the poster as the souvenir. What made you want to see Star Wars? Apart from the poster, I mean the part, the or at least the poster is going to want to um, get you more excited about seeing the film. No, it's because everybody was talking about it, and if you got a good product, people will talk about it. This is just like SEO. This is this is what advertising like. Advertising is like the SEO business, another morally bankrupt business. Whereas if you just make a good product with good customer service, you don't need SEO or advertising. People will talk about it. I'm going to agree with you on the SEO front. Right, so we've got arms dealers, SEO, advertising, and WIPO in some order. You see, now I'm not going to say anything about WIPO because they were lovely, and they gave me an office. That's nice. Okay, we're not going to agree on this. Are we? <laughs> we're not, but I felt like I, I felt like I should uh, I should explain because I I felt like you were you were almost you were glorifying the advertising industry in, in some of your conversations. I felt like I had to uh, had to step in on that. I think that I have a romantic idea as to the way mm. that creative happens. And I use creative yeah. in scare quotes. Owen's going to tell me off. Yeah, because it is, you know, it's an app. Go on. But I also think that, and 
the conversations that everybody's been having around the web have been very product-based. Everything's a bloody product. Everything is designed to be usable. Just because it's just because you either touch it through a piece of glass or you look at it through a piece of glass that's got pixels behind it, somehow usability and um, and the whole kind of you know UX stuff has become more important than what I think is you know that original kind of creative spark. Um, and I mourn that. And I think that it's quite dangerous necessarily. I was thinking about this the other day that young designers or people coming to the web now are not thinking about the bigger idea. All they're thinking about is either tools or process. And, you know, in some of the educational establishments that, you know, that I go into, I mean, think about Manchester Met, MMU, where I go fairly regularly. They don't actually have a design element. You know, they're not teaching students about the stuff that the, the cleverness they're not thinking about wordplay they're not thinking about visual elements they're not thinking about all that stuff which goes together to make something that makes somebody go wow that was great that no, was I, really I, cool i get what you mean about you know um yeah really touching someone right connecting with someone through web design and that, that that's missing that because it's because it's product based and it's about making something usable something that's easy to use so they don't have to, to think because i remember when i first was online I was looking at websites and I didn't get the web. I didn't get why I would be that interested. I saw a search engine. Okay, that's cool. I saw another kind of website, an e-commerce site, whatever. Okay, fine. It wasn't until I saw Frey.com. You remember Frey.com? Mm, I remember Frey. Right? So storytelling, true stories. And each story had, was designed, right? The, the, the content of the story was driving the design. This was the nineties and they were doing, you know, really clever stuff with frame sets and, and all sorts of technology. They were really pushing the, the constraints. And that's when I got the web. Right, because it was this combination of the story and the visual design that together created something else hit memorable, right? It really stuck with me and really connected with me. But to be fair, it wasn't trying to sell me a product. And if it were, it might have different constraints, right? It's, and I have to say, a lot of what you're talking about in terms of wanting to connect with people, wanting to leave that memorable impression, wanting to express yourself as a designer, a lot of it sounds more like art than design to me which i think it's i think if you want to express yourself and you want to have that you want to be known right you want to you want you want to create memorable experiences that people you know have connected with what you've built i think maybe you should be an artist not necessarily a designer no i i, I don't think that's what i mean at all because it's not about expressing my my experiences or I don't my know, see, opinions when i read your follow-up to kenneth's you know letter to a young designer it sounded like you were emphasizing that aspect of you know put the designer putting themselves into their work whereas i i feel the opposite way that designer should be you shouldn't know from a design who designed it um i don't necessarily i don't necessarily think that the audience should know who designed it Mm. but i think that you can look at a great ad and possibly know who, you know, who was behind it. You might see connections. I'm looking here. This will just bring it round. Okay. Um, I'm looking here. At, there's a Microsoft Office 2000 ad that I'm looking at in this book. And it's uh, presumably it's a poster. It could have been a magazine page. I'm not exactly what sure it was now, but it was uh, Euro RSGC was the agency. Um, and the ad doesn't show the product. It's not. It doesn't show anything about Microsoft Office 2000. It doesn't show the box. It doesn't show people smiling and using it. Um, it doesn't show any ma- any aspect of Office at all. There's a pencil 
in the middle of the page. That's all there is on the ad. And underneath mm -hmm. it, it says the man that invented the computer didn't come up with the idea sitting in front of the computer. And then there's some, you know, clever copy that goes underneath it. And all of that to advertise Microsoft Office, the biggest piling pile of shit that exists in the software world. But what that thing is doing is that thing through clever copy is, is bringing somebody in to actually read that stuff. They're wondering what it all is all about. Now you talked about, you know, marketing, advertising, deconstruct, whatever. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm going to be rubbish at it. Right. So at the moment, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's not a bad looking thing and you know, you've, it, it's responsibly nice. It's technically accomplished, but where's, and, and your copy is, is beautiful. As we said, where is that concept about living in the network? It's in the redesign that's on the way. Well, I'm, oh, I hear you. That's the thing. And then I'm not saying that, you know, Kenneth and, you know, people that do so-called user experience design or, or research or whatever, you know, should just get a job in Tesco's because, you know, all of these disciplines all play a part. But what we shouldn't do is we shouldn't forget that it's that bit of connection that we are sometimes missing when we talk about web design, because that stuff is just as valid on your deconstruct homepage as it is in this Microsoft ad. Now, it just so happens, the difference is, is that Microsoft Office 2000 might have been a big pile of crap, and deconstruct is going to be an amazing place to, and venue to go to. The advertising is the same. The product is, is what you objected to. It's that, that kind of moral ambiguity that bothers me about the advertising industry, though. Like I said, that, that the product almost is by the by. It's about making it memorable. In fact, that the, the worse the product, the, the hard, you know, the better the advertising in a way. So if we take away the fact that the, let's, let's imagine that in your new design for deconstruct, there's going to be a, 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 a new header. Mm -hmm. Or a new, a new panel on the homepage, which is sort of telling people about the message and what the theme is going to be this year and why they should come and creating that kind of emotional connection, mm -hmm. right? Presumably that's, that's something that you've got in mind. So your, that could be a great piece of work. That could be a great piece of creative work. Um, we're not talking about interrupting anybody. You know, we're not talking about all the things that you object to in terms of advertising. Yeah. So, you know, you're not, emailing and spamming people with that message. You're not, you know, tweeting them 50 times a day. All of, you take that away. Um, but that's taking away all the things that are advertising. No, it's not. It's not. I'm, that's not the aspect, maybe what you think about as advertising, but that's not the element of advertising that I am romantically attached to. What I'm romantically attached to is just what we're talking about for your deconstruct header. It's that creative part, nothing about user experience, nothing about interrupting people, nothing about shit product. It's that thing. It's why is that there? Why, why have you put that there? We see this is where I agree completely. You need to justify every decision. And that's exactly why research and, uh, you know, good user experience work is so important because then you can justify your decision instead of just saying, well, I think it looks nice which isn't a good enough reason, which is exactly what Kenneth talked about in his post. You know, somebody's going to ask you to justify every single pixel and you're going to have to be able to do it. I but coming with up that. with the idea and then validating it is fine. And what I find troublesome is the idea that um, you have to have something validating you before you actually end up with something that's good. Maybe you have something that's good at the beginning. Yeah, you have to validate. I mean, otherwise it's going to be a very expensive, uh, product launch when you get it out. Then it turns out it was a bad idea. You could have validated that earlier on. Quick prototype. Get it out there. Does it work? No. Back to the drawing board. Does it work? Yes. Off we go. 
that's just part of the design process, though. I don't know. I don't even know why we call it something else. No, I agree with that. And if we're talking about, you know, terminology, then yeah, user experience design is just design, in my opinion. And that's, I know that's going to set off howls of indignation for many people. But every d- definition I've ever heard of UX um, just sounds like a definition of design. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I think. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it. All the things you're running against are part of the design process. Like I said, research. There's nothing wrong with research. Research is a good thing. That should be part of the design process, you know? Prototyping, testing, validating. That's all part of the design process. And also part of the design process is why did they choose just to show that pencil? Or why is the guy taking his jeans off in the laundrette? Because it tested well with audiences. But somebody had the idea in the first place. And what we're not teaching people, what we're not teaching people by focusing on this process and tools and this kind of, you know, very dry, um, mechanical approach to design. We're not teaching them that actually ideas matter somewhere in there as well. I, I agree. Completely. Maybe it's about a balance. I agree completely. It's about a balance. I agree that there's overemphasis on tools. I certainly feel that's the case in web development right now. There's way too much emphasis on tools over overthinking. Um, but I also think if you if you go too far in the ideas direction, yeah, what you end up with is art, not design. No, I would agree with that. So somewhere in the middle is just good old design. And one of the things that I'm going to be talking about, you know, maybe later on this year, certainly into next year, if anybody will actually ever have me at a conference again, is this aspect. And I want to be looking at, I want to be looking at the good things about ad work. Okay. We'll just call it advertising. We'll just call it ad work. Maybe you can just appreciate that and looking at examples as to, you know, what makes a great ad. Um, and what makes it work and try and just get people excited about that again. Okay. Um, like I said, I have, I have issues with the advertising industry. Um, but sure, I can see how you could examine the work in it's isolation. It's the work. It's the work. In isolation from its moral implications on the world. It's, it's about the work. It's not about the industry and it's not necessarily about the people that are in the industry. And actually, you know, gosh, you look back at Mad Men now. I mean, I know it's only a TV show, but you think, God, would I have been able to survive in that environment? Does that environment still exist in the advertising industry where everything is spec work, where, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, all about the big reveal. The process is terrible. People are overworked. That's, that still exists. And, you know, awards are the big deal. Everyone cares about the awards. I'm so, I'm so glad that the web doesn't yet have that aspect to it. Well, do you know what it does in certain areas? And what I've learned over the last few months, and particularly after the Net Awards, was I thought to myself, God, is this it? And I did look around, and there are other web awards, you know, Webbies included, and you'd be horrified, actually. No, I, I am horrified by um, the Webbies. Mean, yeah. Even the Clios have a, a digital category. And it's all of the type of kind of big brand, um, what we would have thought of years ago as kind of, you know, big flash monster sites. Yeah. Yeah. But today it's the kind of JavaScript equivalent. Interactive. It's all of that. Yeah. And, and none of, and none of the, um, none of the stuff that we ever see or talk about, um, is on there and vice versa. It's like a complete, it's like a parallel universe of, on the web. Yeah, no, I agree. And this way, so, you know, sometimes I see friends of mine, designers, and I sort of bemoan the fact that web design isn't treated in the same way that, you know, print or, or, or motion graphics is and, you know, doesn't have the same cachet, doesn't have the awards. And I, I tend to respond with, no, that's a good thing. Be happy about that. It means we can get on with doing the work and not be distracted by this culture of, 
of, of, of awards that, you know, is epitomizing that, that madman way of working where it is, it is all about that, you know, having that memorable thing that, uh, that will win awards. Well, you have a memorable thing because it's effective at the job that it's doing, not just because it's, it wins awards. Mm, yeah. But once you start to bring the, uh, the culture of awards into it, it starts to go down this, this spiral down the toilet. That's a whole other topic. Yeah. <laughs> we should wrap it up. Okay. Thanks for coming on, mate. That's all right. That was, um, that was fun. I know you've got like a million things to do, whatever it is that you actually do. Well, I'll get back to uh, working on the deconstruct website. And thinking of ways to try and convince people that they should come to deconstruct. I need to come up with a memorable idea. You need to come up with a tagline, mate. Yeah. Microsoft Office. It'll just be a picture of a pencil saying deconstruct. I'd like, what time is it now? It's 12.30. I'd like 25 tags by five o'clock, please. All right. I'll get the scotch and the cigarettes out and I'll get working. (laughs) So obviously people can follow you on Twitter because you are... Well, they can, but they can follow me on my own website, which is where the canonical URLs are. Okay, so they can follow you at adactio.com. Yes. That's where my original notes are. The tweets that you see on Twitter are just copies. Actually, I need to talk to you about doing that myself. Come to Indie Web Camp right after Deconstruct, and we'll we'll do it. We'll sit down and we'll we'll code that weekend. Okay, we'll do that. Or you can find me on my website at stuffandnonsense.co.uk, but I'm on Twitter as well, at Malaki. And to ask questions or suggest topics, you can actually send a message to this show on Twitter at unfinished.bz, or you can email me, he has at unfinished.bz. Thanks again to our fabulous sponsors who didn't really interrupt anybody today. <laughs> Logical Elements and Shopify, as always, you can support the show by supporting them. Cheers, mate. See ya. <laughs>